Due to the graphic nature of this story, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of death, murder, and rape. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. On May 15, 1976, 14-year-old Susan Jacobson left her house in Staten Island, New York, to get ice cream. She never returned. Police suspected she ran away, but Susan's parents were worried something far worse had happened. Desperate for answers, they called a psychic detective, Dorothy Allison. As soon as Dorothy entered the Jacobson's house, she had a vision. Three big red letters written in paint. M-A-R. When she asked Susan's mother what the word could mean, she had no idea. More images flashed through Dorothy's mind in quick succession. A swampland, two church steeples, smokestacks, and an abandoned car. The Jacobsons watched as Dorothy narrated what she saw. I smell oil, she said, and sense the number 222. The police refused to give credence to the visions. But two years later, on March 25, 1978, a group of teenagers came across a rock with the letters M-A-R spray-painted on it. An abandoned car sat nearby. Church steeples and smokestacks loomed in the distance. A nearby oil drum was marked with the serial number 222, and when the boys peered inside, they saw what they thought were dog bones. But looking closer, they spotted jeans and a pair of sneakers. It was Susan Jacobson exactly where Dorothy Allison said she would be. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. In life, there's so much we don't know, but in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Tuesday and Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is our first episode on Dorothy Allison, a self-proclaimed psychic who helped police with hundreds of investigations from missing children to serial killers. This time... We'll learn how Dorothy tragically discovered her psychic abilities and first got involved with solving crimes. We'll examine her rise to fame and then discuss her legacy. Next time, we'll dissect Dorothy's cases and attempt to answer the ultimate question. Were her psychic abilities real or was she a fraud? We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. 
Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Dorothy Allison's psychic powers first manifested when she was a teenager. In 1939, 14-year-old Dorothy stood at a bakery counter in Jersey City, New Jersey. Her mother had sent her to get some rolls for dinner. Suddenly, outside the bakery shop window, she saw a vision of a man's blurry face and the outline of his body. When the baker spoke to Dorothy, it was obvious he didn't notice anything. Only Dorothy witnessed the specter. But for hours afterward, she couldn't shake the vague image. When Dorothy arrived back at home, she had another psychic incident. Before she made it inside, the man's head appeared again, this time lying on her front lawn. Dorothy whirled towards her front door. There, a new image blossomed before her eyes. Long white lilies and an ivory crepe hung over the entryway. These were symbols of mourning, but Dorothy didn't know anyone who died. She looked back into her yard, where she could still see the man's blurry face. This time, its features sharpened, and suddenly, Dorothy understood. The head was her father's, and he was going to die. At the time, her 50-year-old father was in the hospital with a bad cold. She'd been told it wasn't serious. He was otherwise healthy. But Dorothy couldn't shake a feeling of dread. Just a few days later, Dorothy's vision came true. She stayed up waiting for her mother, Apollonia, to get home from the hospital. When Apollonia walked in, she burst into tears. Dorothy's father had died. Apollonia herself was a psychic. People from the neighborhood often came to the house to learn their futures. When she learned Dorothy had predicted her father's death, Apollonia told her daughter that this power was a gift that sometimes came with a sting. Dorothy and her mother weren't anomalies. Around the time Dorothy was born in 1924, America was still fascinated with spiritualism. This was an informal belief system that involved psychics or mediums communicating with the dead via rituals like seances. American interest in spiritualism spiked after 1865, the end of the Civil War. The fighting had taken 750,000 lives, and people found solace in the possibility of talking to their deceased loved ones. In the decades since then, people realized that spiritualism also had massive entertainment value. By the 1920s, an entire industry had cropped up. While some performers used tricks to thrill their crowds, other psychics insisted they were the real deal. They really could communicate with the dead. 
1922, two years before Dorothy was born, the Scientific American asked a panel of scientists to find a genuine medium. Magician Harry Houdini, a sleight-of-hand expert and a fervent skeptic of any real psychic powers, also joined the group. Together they made an offer. If a psychic could demonstrate real powers to the panel, they would win $5,000. No one ever received the prize money. Even the most notable mediums were debunked. Still, the panel refused to dismiss the practice of spiritualism outright. If true psychics existed, this would conceivably be a good thing. Their powers could help people, maybe even save lives. But young Dorothy felt terrified by her supposed gift. She equated her visions with her father's death and was frightened of what she might see next. Apollonia was more hopeful. She predicted her daughter would go far, and she encouraged Dorothy to believe in herself and her visions. She must remember that her purpose was to help people and be sure to refuse any payment. Dorothy listened to her mother, but otherwise paid no attention to her own visions. She had other things to worry about. At age 16, she married her high school sweetheart and had a child the next year. Before long, she was a mother of three and a busy housewife. Eventually, Dorothy divorced her first husband. And some years later, Dorothy had a dream. In it, she fell in love with a complete stranger. Just two weeks later, Dorothy was introduced to a man named Bob, literally the person she had seen in her dream. Not one for subtleties, Dorothy explained her vision to him. They were quickly married. If Dorothy ever sought an altruistic purpose for her visions, she finally found one in December of 1967. By then, Dorothy was 43 and had moved to Nutley, New Jersey with Bob and her children. On December 3rd, Dorothy dreamt she saw a bright light. A little boy emerged from the center of the glow. Then, the light transformed into dark clouds as the boy's skin glistened pale white. Dorothy felt water rushing over her and the child, and she realized in horror that the boy was drowning. Disconnected images flashed before her eyes. She saw a school, a lumberyard, a park, and the number eight. Dorothy watched as the boy drowned and his body flowed through a pipe system. Suddenly, his body jolted to a stop. Dorothy herself became aware that she felt trapped. She cried out until she woke up from the dream. This nightmare stuck with Dorothy for weeks. Before this point, she'd only had visions about people she knew. But she had no idea who this boy could be. She described him to her neighbors, family, and friends. Still, nobody recognized him. A month later, Dorothy marched into the Nutley Police Department. At first, the officers were hesitant, especially when she mentioned her psychic vision. Then, Dorothy described the boy. She said he wore a green snowsuit, a striped polo shirt, and an undershirt with a metal pin on it. And his shoes were on the wrong feet. The Nutley detectives couldn't believe it. Dorothy had accurately described five-year-old Michael Cursus, a missing boy whose description had been completely unpublicized. The police listened while Dorothy repeated the images she saw in her dream. A school, a lumberyard, 
a park and the number eight. She also believed the number 120 was important and that the police should look next to an office building with gold lettering. Finally, she claimed Michael would be found on February 7th behind a school. On February 7, 1968, at approximately 1.20 p.m., a man spotted Michael's body in a pond where some pipes let out. The pond was next to an elementary school called PS8. Nearby was a lumberyard, a park, and an office building with gold lettering. Every detail matched Dorothy's description. His shoes were even on the wrong feet. Never again did Dorothy have to call the police. Instead, they came to her. Over the next 10 years, Dorothy found 20 missing people or their bodies for the Nutley PD. And although some remained skeptical of her psychic visions, results were still results. Between 1967 and 1980, Dorothy correctly predicted that a man who seemingly vanished into thin air had actually fallen off a train on his way to work. She also provided an accurate sketch of a Pennsylvania killer. And in 1976, she found the grave of 14-year-old Susan Jacobson, the girl who had gone out for ice cream and never returned. Dorothy even named the murderer. She had predicted exactly where Susan was found by a group of boys in 1978. Every single clue Dorothy provided, a swamp, dual church steeples, dual smokestacks, an abandoned car, and a rock with the letters M-A-R could be seen from the spot where Susan's body lay. Not to mention the teen was found in an oil drum with the serial number 222, a number Dorothy had sensed in her visions. The location wasn't the only thing Dorothy predicted. She also saw a vivid image of Susan's boyfriend, 16-year-old Dempsey Hawkins, strangling her. The police had dismissed this, but once Susan's body was found, a cousin of Dempsey's testified that Dempsey had admitted to killing Susan. Police arrested the boy, and a jury found him guilty of the murder. If the police had only listened to Dorothy when she first gave these details, they could have found Susan and put Dempsey behind bars two years earlier. But they wouldn't make the same mistake again. And when a new breed of killers emerged in America, Dorothy was on the case. Coming up, with serial killers on the rise, American police turn to Dorothy Allison. Hi, it's Carter from ParCast, and I'm hosting the new limited series, Hollywood Scandals. We all know that Tinseltown is the land of glitz and glamour, but look closer past the allure of bright lights and red carpets. There, you'll find a more disturbing tale, one filled with tragedies and transgressions so damaging they've turned hopes and dreams into high-profile nightmares. Every Monday on this Spotify original, discover the real-life dramas of some of entertainment's biggest names. From the mysterious drowning of Natalie Wood and the murder trials of comedian Fatty Arbuckle to the star clients of Hollywood Madam Heidi Fleiss. Each episode of Hollywood Scandals has been curated from shows across the ParCast network, covering over a century's worth of controversies, 
from the silent era into the digital age. Fame and fortune may be fleeting, but scandals, they stand the test of time. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Hollywood Scandals. Listen free only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. America entered a dark period in the second half of the 20th century. From early 1960 to the late 1970s, just as Dorothy Allison was beginning her detective work, the U.S. homicide rate doubled, reaching its height in 1980. While the growing number of murders strained the police, nothing terrified the public more than the brutal crimes of serial killers. These criminals were unlike anything the police had ever seen before. Their crimes were habitual, disturbing, and often committed by people who appeared completely normal, with no apparent motives. Killers like Ted Bundy, Jeffrey Dahmer, and John Wayne Gacy murdered in secret for years, completely undetected. Serial killers were difficult to catch for a number of reasons. First, lack of technology. Without large databases that tracked criminals between departments, it was hard to assemble all the puzzle pieces of a single case. And DNA testing wasn't yet widely available. The other issue was how little people understood these killers and the psychology behind their actions. The term serial killer wasn't even coined until the 1980s. As traditional policing failed, some investigators turned to unorthodox methods, asking for help from psychics. In 1977, detectives from Yonkers, New York, reached out to Dorothy about a case they didn't understand. For over a year, a man had murdered several young women around New York and left notes for the detectives. The killer called himself the Son of Sam. When Dorothy first learned about the Son of Sam, she quickly saw an image of the man's face. She drew a sketch for the police and told them the killer would be caught soon. Supposedly, a parking ticket would reveal his identity. On July 31, 1977, the son of Sam struck again. He shot a couple sitting together in a car parked on a Brooklyn street. An eyewitness reported seeing a man with a gun get out of a car moments before the attack. The suspect's description matched Dorothy's drawing. Not only that, he'd left a clue. The witness said she saw two police officers ticket the killer's car shortly after he exited the vehicle to presumably commit the crime. And just as Dorothy predicted, a parking ticket led the cops to David Berkowitz. Berkowitz, a 24-year-old letter sorter for the U.S. Postal Service, murdered six people between 1976 and 1977. As soon as police picked him up, he confessed and asked them why it took them so long to find him. Berkowitz then claimed he was ordered to kill by his neighbor's dog, 
who was a demon and demanded human blood. The neighbor's name was Sam, hence the nickname. Although Dorothy's visions didn't directly lead to the arrest, her accurate description of Berkowitz, her prediction of when he'd be caught, and the bit about the parking ticket all boosted her reputation. A year later, in December 1978, Des Illinois Chief of Police, Joseph Kosensack, asked Dorothy Allison for help. He needed her to locate the body of a missing 15-year-old boy named Robert Peast. They believed Robert had been killed by John Wayne Gacy, a contractor from Cook County. Though it was Christmas Eve, Dorothy drove all the way from Nutley, New Jersey, to the Chicago suburb to be part of the investigation. The inquiry for this one crime quickly unfolded into a nightmare discovery. Upon entering Gacy's house, two officers smelled the undeniable odor of decomposing corpses. Within days, Gacy was arrested and confessed to abducting, raping, and murdering more than 30 young men. While 29 of these bodies were found in Gacy's home, many were still missing, including Robert's. Dorothy threw herself into finding Robert Peast. She worked 18-hour days, often trudging through three feet of snow to search possible locations. Chief Kozenzak spent valuable time, money, and resources following Dorothy's visions around Illinois, but to no avail. Every location was a dead end. But before Dorothy went back to Nutley, she made a prediction. She claimed that Robert would be found on April 9th, 1979. On April 9th, Robert's naked body was found in the Des Plaines River. Although Dorothy didn't track him down directly, from that moment on, many of the Des Plaines police believed in her psychic abilities. Chief Kozenzak praised her work and suggested that the sheer amount of Gacy's victims must have interfered with her ability to clearly see one boy. Throughout her career, Dorothy herself admitted her visions were not always clear or even accurate. She said she could only try to interpret the images as they came to her. She could only hope her interpretations were right. Meanwhile, she and other psychic detectives like her became explosively popular. Peter Herkos was a famous Dutch psychic who claimed to gain his ability when he fell off a ladder in 1941. After losing consciousness for four days, Peter woke up with the ability to read minds and see the future. He then moved to America and became a psychic detective. Peter was involved in two high-profile cases in the 60s. The first was the search for the Boston Strangler, and the second was the Manson murders. On August 8, 1969, several people broke into actress Sharon Tate's home and brutally killed her and everyone inside. They stabbed their victims over 50 times and wrote on the walls in their blood. This crime scene was unlike anything the LAPD had ever seen, so they called in Peter Herkos. As he walked through the house, Peter confidently stated that a man named Charlie planned the slaying. Two weeks later, Charles Manson was arrested for ordering the murders. Another psychic detective, Nancy Weber, also found success. In 1987, she solved a case in which someone beat a woman to death with a claw hammer. When she toured the victim's apartment, 
Nancy felt an evil energy coming from upstairs. She saw a vision of a man with a scar on his face, a large belt buckle, and the initials J.R. All these images pointed to one of the police suspects, the victim's upstairs neighbor, John Reese. But when police brought Reese in for questioning, he passed a polygraph test. Nancy was adamant. She insisted the authorities talk to Reese again. This time, Reese tangled himself in several lies. With no way out, he confessed to the murder. Once again, a clairvoyant had cracked the case. There were a lot of parallels between Dorothy and her fellow psychic detectives. Like Nancy Weber, Dorothy sometimes asked to hold a victim's belongings to feel their energy. Many of these mediums got flashes of information through images or feelings. All of them could describe the locations of bodies with frequent success. And Dorothy, Nancy Weber, and Peter Herkos had all successfully named murderers. But none of them had a perfect track record. This actually helped legitimize psychic abilities because it meant mistakes were a normal occurrence, not a sign of fraud. But it was Dorothy who rose the highest in the public eye. This was for several reasons, including her fierce dedication to a moral code. Although the other psychics charged for their help, Dorothy took her mother's advice and refused payment. She accepted traveling expenses, but if a family couldn't pay that much, she would opt to stay with someone from the police department. Dorothy's obsessive nature also gained her attention. In several interviews, she insulted and even threatened killers. Alternatively, she was incredibly tender toward the victims. She made a photo album of all the children whose bodies she'd helped find. Every time she took on a case, the collection grew. Dorothy called these children her angels. She often slept with the pictures, claiming they focused her visions. She also wore a medallion of St. Anthony, the protector of the lost and found. Dorothy Allison was the most unexpected hero in the battle against American serial killers, and the public loved her for it. Her reputation soared, and one thing was for sure. With such a gleaming reputation, Dorothy had a long way to fall. Coming up, a string of missing children puts Dorothy Allison in the hot seat. Now, back to the story. By 1980, psychic detective Dorothy Allison was working on around 10 cases every week. With a mix of success and occasional failures, her overall reputation thrived. That was until the Atlanta cases. On July 28, 1979, A woman collecting cans stumbled across the bodies of two black boys in a vacant lot in Atlanta, Georgia. One belonged to 14-year-old Edward Hope Smith. He disappeared a few weeks earlier on July 20th. The other was 13-year-old Alfred Evans, who'd gone missing just three days earlier. Alfred was found face down, shirtless, and barefoot. He had been strangled to death while Edward was shot. And these two children were only the beginning. Over the next few months, young black kids vanished across the city. 
Many of their brutalized bodies appeared in remote locations around Atlanta. Some were never found. Community members believed the killings must be connected, but the Atlanta police failed to link them. In fact, many of their constituents felt they were indifferent to the dozens of black children dying. Heartbroken and angry, the victims' mothers formed the Committee to Stop Children's Murders to apply pressure on police. Desperate to get the heat off them, the Atlanta PD asked Dorothy Allison for help. At the time, Dorothy was in the middle of promoting her new book, A Psychic's Story, but she dropped everything and traveled to Atlanta in October 1980. At first, she was a comfort to the victims' families. The psychic met with Willie Mae Mathis, whose 10-year-old son Jeffrey had vanished on the way to the grocery store in March 1980. Willie Mae was a member of the Committee to Stop Children's Murders, and she believed Dorothy Allison could help. Atlanta Police Chief George Knapper was more ambivalent. On the one hand, Knapper told newspapers he wasn't going to leave any stone unturned, so he was open to all possibilities, including Dorothy. But he also pointed out that she was a psychic detective with a book to sell. Maybe she'd be too distracted to focus on the case. Dorothy remained diligent. When visiting the victims' families, she used their children's photos and belongings to hone her visions. She claimed the killer was a black male who was angry about being poor. He flew into a homicidal rage at the sight of impoverished black boys and girls because they reminded him of his own circumstances. Dorothy eventually provided police with a list of 42 potential names for the killer, a huge amount of tips for the authorities to work through. But some think that book deal and Dorothy's new celebrity affected her work in Atlanta. For one, she was chauffeured around in a limousine. That alone was a far cry from when Dorothy drove herself to Susan Jacobson's home or when she trudged through the snow to find Robert Peast. Dorothy had promised the mothers she would stop the Atlanta killings. However, her presence was far from reassuring. According to pioneer criminal profiler John Douglas, Dorothy actually contributed to a media circus. She taunted the murderer in TV interviews, daring him to make a move. And then, shortly after her arrival, Dorothy left Atlanta without catching the killer. Although parents like Willie May initially believed in Dorothy, who knows how she felt when the psychic skipped town. One distraught mother complained that Dorothy took her only photo of her missing son. But some good did come from Dorothy's trip to Atlanta. Her book sales went through the roof. Ultimately, it was the police who caught the Atlanta child murderer, not Dorothy. On April 22, 1981, police monitored the Chattahoochee River where the Atlanta child killer had dumped several bodies. After hearing a loud splash, they caught and questioned a driver on the bridge above. It was 23-year-old music manager Wayne Williams. When 27-year-old Nathaniel Carter's body surfaced two days later, authorities arrested Williams. Eventually, they convicted him for the murder of two adults, Nathaniel Carter and 21-year-old Jimmy Ray Payne. 
The police didn't have enough evidence to try Williams in court for the child murders. Nonetheless, they closed the case, claiming he was guilty for all of it. It was a gross leap of faith, and some believe the police used Williams as a scapegoat to hide their failure. But after his arrest, the child murders did stop. Though this was good news for the people of Atlanta, it didn't bode well for Dorothy's career. Of all the clues she provided, none pointed to this exact killer besides his being black. And no portion of Wayne Williams' name appeared in the list she had given the police. Dorothy faced critics throughout her career, but after her Atlanta failure, they all pounced at once. James Randi was a famous skeptic who debunked false magicians, mind readers, faith healers, and fortune tellers. Randi constantly targeted Dorothy because he thought she tricked grieving families. After Atlanta, he claimed she won the Yuri Award, a so-called prize or title he gave to psychic frauds. Randi's wasn't the only voice raised against Dorothy. Detective George Brajack with the Patterson, New Jersey Police called Dorothy a fraud in the Washington Post after working a case with her in November 1979. After an eight-year-old boy named Delvis Matias vanished near Patterson, New Jersey, Detective Brajack claimed Dorothy led the police on a wild goose chase. They spent days following her instructions, and when they couldn't find anything, Dorothy simply gave up. Later, an eyewitness testified he had seen Delvis with a man named Gualberto Nieves Morales. Detective Brajack arrested Nieves Morales, who confessed, and Brajack found Delvis's body, all without Dorothy's help. Brajack claimed that Dorothy asked if she could tell TV reporters that she was present when he found the boy. Supposedly, she said it would be good for her book. Those loyal to Dorothy couldn't believe it, and they adamantly defended her. Detective Salvatore Lubertazzi of the Nutley Police had traveled to Atlanta with Dorothy. The Nutley Police had worked with Dorothy on the first case she ever solved, that of Michael Cursus, the boy who had been found in a pond with his shoes on the wrong feet. Now, Detective Lubertazzi acted like Dorothy's translator, interpreting her clairvoyant clues into feasible police action. Lubertazzi said that Dorothy's visions could be confusing at first since she just saw jumbled images rather than a whole scene. He said she could only determine the accuracy of her dreams after the investigation came to a conclusion. This sounds very similar to a tactic called retrofitting that fraudulent psychics use. In it, mediums mention broad, loosely related ideas to investigators, and they wait until after the case is solved to connect their visions to actual results. For example, they might say they see a victim near trees. Then, if police discover a body in the woods, the psychic will claim it matches their vision. It's not clear if Dorothy was retrofitting or just truly having vague premonitions. But over the next two decades, her presence dwindled on high-profile cases. It's unclear whether this was because the homicide rate dropped in the mid-80s or if the Atlanta case damaged her career. 
Dorothy still took on many smaller cases free of charge. And she even tried to clear her name during an interview with David Letterman in 1982. On camera, she offered a bizarre explanation for what happened in Atlanta. She claimed that in 1978, a year prior to the child killings, she assisted the police with another set of brutal murders in Columbus, Georgia. Dorothy claimed that during the Columbus case, she described and named Wayne Williams, even giving details about his profession and address. She saw him strangling people, but she didn't know any of the who, where, or whens regarding the case. Supposedly, when the Atlanta killings began in 1979, Dorothy expected the Columbus police to send her tip about Wayne Williams to the Atlanta PD. She claimed they told her they would pass her taped statement on, but the alleged tape was never sent. Dorothy calmly reported all this to Letterman, shrugging her shoulders and saying she couldn't tell the police what to do. It was on them, not her. If this was a lie, it was bold and risky, since the Columbus station could have corrected her, but they never responded. It's possible she was telling the truth. Perhaps her vision did skip ahead two years, and the Columbus police didn't think her tip was genuine. If and when they saw her Letterman interview, they chose not to respond because they knew she was right. They should have sent the tape to Atlanta. No matter what actually happened in Atlanta, Dorothy continued to consult on crimes. She still slept with her photo album of child victims and wore her St. Anthony medallion every day. In 1998, 74-year-old Dorothy knew that she would not live to see 75. By this time, she'd worked on thousands of murder cases, many of which she viewed as successes. Her book of angels was completely full, and she felt content. Her mission was complete. On December 1st, 1998, Dorothy's final prediction came true. She died in a New Jersey hospital from heart failure, four weeks before her 75th birthday. Depending on how you view the situation, Dorothy Allison was either a saint who helped families find their loved ones, or a fraud who took advantage of tragedy. It all comes down to one question that Houdini himself couldn't answer. Are psychic powers possible? We'll tackle that question and the truth about Dorothy Allison in the next episode. Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. We will be back next time with part two of Dorothy Allison, Psychic Detective. For more information on Dorothy, amongst the many sources we used, we found her book, Dorothy Allison, A Psychic Story, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. See you next time. And remember, never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries is a Spotify original from ParCast. It is executive produced by Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. 
This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Kit Fitzgerald with writing assistance by Molly Quinlan and Ali Wicker. Fact-checking by Cara Mackerlean and research by Bradley Klein. Unexplained Mysteries stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. Hey there, Carter again. Before you go, remember to check out my new podcast limited series, Hollywood Scandals. In anticipation of the Oscars, we're unearthing some of the most sordid controversies in showbiz history. Tune in every Monday. Follow Hollywood Scandals free only on Spotify.